Hi, you've called the Mojo Radio Show. We can't come to the phone right now because we're about to start the show. But please, wait for the tone and the boys will be with you shortly. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome to the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you in the passenger seat, driving the bus, the guy with the velour seat covers and he's wearing a little cap today, a bit like Captain Steubing. Mind you, the same shape as Captain Steubing. Uh, good evening. Do you like the cap? I had it done in red velour. It's beautiful. So comfy just to rum your hand over, you know, it's it's smooth very, as. It's very slimming too. <laughs> hey, uh, now, mate, before we start the show, mm. one quick note. Last week, or might have been the week before, we ran a little contest, which is a North Shore surfing term for contest, uh, giving away the Dead Daisies pack, which is an incredible pack from our mates at the Dead Daisies. It's a limited edition. It's only one. We've got one of a hundred in the world. Uh, the issue I have is that we have had some entries come in, and I'll tell you how you went in just a second. There's one more week to run, but I've actually lost the pack. Do you? Have, have, you, have you? No, mate. I haven't seen it? it. No idea. Couldn't tell you to know. Pack what pack? I don't know. I got nothing. No, you didn't see me do it. You no, can't prove nothing. It wasn't me. You got you, unless you've got video evidence, mate. You got nothing. <laughs> well, we do have CCTV here in the studio, so I will be pulling that up, and uh, I'm going to sniff a dog coming in. Yeah, right. And uh, I'm also going to be doing some fingerprinting, which leads into our guest from today. But before we, actually, it's a very nice segue. Before we lead into our guest today, who is a former forensic policeman of the Federal Police, uh, actually, I may, I may need to get Bainesy in here to help us with this <laughs> Lost Dead Daisies pack. So very quickly, folks, if you would like to win this limited edition pack, and it's got albums and CDs and vinyl and posters and stickers and you name it, these guys have put together a fabulous pack, and I think it's valued at almost 200 bucks. All you need to do is tell us who you would like to help get their mojo working. Tell us their name, give us their story, why you think that person deserves this pack, and we will send it to them at our expense, our freight. The boys have given us a pack, one of 100 to give away, but it's about being of service, as our good mate Tate Fletcher would say from Caveman Coffee, being of service to somebody else. Just tell us who that person is, and we will send it off. You email us at info at themojoradioshow.com or through our website. We will pick one out, send it off in the mail. It's as uh, easy as that. It's gold. It might get lost in the mail. <laughs> yeah, I think it's already <laughs> got lost. It's got lost in transit between the kitchen and the studio. That's right, exactly. The Mojo Radio Show. So as I alluded to, our guest this week is a former forensic policeman. And uh, his name is Peter Baines, and I've got to say I am a fan of this guy. I first came across Peter when we were doing some speaking gigs together a few years ago now, and he very kindly sent me a copy of his book. And it's a great read. Peter's backstory was that he basically built the first part of his career investigating homicides and leading international teams into crises and disasters like the Bali bombings, tsunamis, like the heaviest, heaviest of duty stories and situations that you'll hear about as Bainji goes through them. 
He's a fascinating guy because he's then transitioned from that career, taken all his leadership skills and all his observations of teams, how teams work, and he now consults to people. He is on the speaking circuit here in Australia and around the world. And he also runs a fantastic charity called Hands Across the Water, and he'll tell you about Hands Across the Water and what they do, but it's extraordinary that any money that he raises for Hands Across the Water, and it has been tens of millions of dollars, 100%, 100% go to the cause, and that's helping kids over in Thailand. He's an incredible character. You'll hear he's a very straight shooter. He's smart, articulate. He's been there and done that, and he really knows leadership. Peter Baines, mate, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Uh, it's great to have a chat with you guys. Mate, it's been a while since we've caught up. Uh, just to put everybody in the picture, if somebody walks up to Peter Baines in the pub and says, G'day, mate, on a day you control, what do you do? How do you reply today? Well, it really depends upon uh, uh, who I'm talking to, I guess, <laughs> but um, what I'd like to say and uh, looking forward, I'd like to say I'm a farmer, but uh, um, I <laughs> I guess the uh, you know the question is uh, um, you know it's it's what you want to convey to people or explain what you're about and so forth and and where I spend all my time now is um, uh, running a social enterprise which is uh, it's called the Hands Group and uh, under that it's a uh, supports a, a charity that I started 12 years ago now called Hands Across the Water and. Uh, um, and the social enterprise side uh, delivers uh, value back to business through uh, meaningful experiences and uh, shared experiences and and supports a charity. So I run that during the uh, during the week, and then um, pretty fortunate, a bit like you, Gary, that uh, um, we get to travel and um, uh, travel and speak for organisations and. That takes me both around Australia, and I've been fortunate to to travel the world, sharing stories, and uh, um, and you know it's a pretty blessed life. So, um, so that's what I do now. The the, the dream of becoming a farmer is uh, is maybe a bit of a while off yet, though. <laughs> we'll get to that, mate. Um, I've known you for quite a while. We've done a number of jobs together, and I've always seen you as being someone at the forefront of leadership from your work in the New South Wales Police and going into natural disasters and really having to take control and do some amazing work on that front. When you, when you reflect on leadership as it is today, what, what areas of leadership are exciting you about the possibilities in, in this day and age? It's a really interesting uh, question and um, someone might think that we'd planned it and as you and I know, we haven't. And uh, I've actually, you know, for 20-odd years, I uh, was part of the, the police and as you said, I led international teams into Bali after the bombings and Thailand into the tsunami and um, I'd go on to work for Interpol um, in France, in the counter-terrorism area, I work for the UN um, Office of Drug and Crime in Southeast Asia, and spent time in the city of Jeddah in Saudi Arabia after floods over there, building um, uh, capacity around their crisis mitigation and disaster response. Uh, worked in uh, Japan after the 2011 tsunami, and and the leadership uh, in those areas that was really structured. Um, and there was um, clear lines of uh, of reporting and command and control and 
and leadership was, uh, uh, you know, the, the, it was it was really defined. And but I left there uh, in to, the end of 2008, and and ever since then I've been working in a completely different space and and uh, spending more and more time in Thailand with some amazing uh, humanitarian leaders and uh, who have devoted their life uh, to causes and to people. And and what's been really interesting, uh, Gary, is to seeing how they've had to deal with circumstances which they have uh, seldom uh, little control over and uh, the leadership and resilience that they've shown. And it's something that I've been spending um, a fair bit of time on probably in the last uh, 12, 18 months or so is looking at what the different opportunities and different traits and styles of leadership that I'm seeing. And, and it's from you know these ladies in the main that I'm talking about from Thailand who have shown an incredible uh, resilience, both in physical, mental, and a soulful resilience as to how they've worked in areas uh, for, you know, 30-odd years and what they faced. It's it's the influence that they've seen. It's the the empathetic leadership. And it's uh, it's a shift that, uh, um, that I've been looking at and focusing and being a student of, I guess, for the last 12 years because I've seen what they've been able to achieve, but um, more so the longevity that they've had in some really bloody tough times. Um, and I look back on my previous uh, life, and um, and I don't, I can't think of any leader that's had the same longevity and faced the same challenges as these other people I'm talking about now. And and I go, well, what is it? Where does where does that resilience come from? Where does the influence? And I see it in this humanitarian leadership. I want to sort of backtrack on that, get you to explain it a little bit. And I, I read sure. a blog you wrote some time ago, and the blog was kind of referring to, let's call it older leadership styles and how it may have changed and then now is a new way to Dave thinking about leadership. And the word... Well, the words you wrote, which is tie into what you just said, was ruthless empathy. I've never heard anybody refer to it like that, and I love that term. It seems to give it some sort of emotion. Can you describe exactly what you mean by the the, the, the piece you had was it's gone from action orientation into ruthless empathy. What's ruthless empathy? Yeah, I think it's um, when, when I when I talk about that, there's uh, um, this one lady who I think about who has um, dedicated her entire adult life to uh, caring for children who um, either have HIV or lost their parents to HIV and uh, uh, many of the kids were uh, trafficked and um, in the sex industry they're uh, what's called stateless citizens in that they um, might have come out of the hill tribes of, of Thailand or um, you know, just their identity um, is unknown. They've been abandoned as as young children or babies, and so they don't belong to Thailand or Cambodia or Burma. Or um, they're just, um, uh, but they're living in an existence in in Thailand and under the care of this lady. Now, about ten years ago, or a little over, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and. Uh, um, and the journey that I've, uh, I've, you know, the first time I met her, she was on a walking stick, and um, 
in that uh, that year of 2010. Um, I, I spent a lot of time with her, and I thought that um, uh, she might not see out that year. Well, she's actually ridden with us in Thailand on our 800-kilometre bike rides, and in 2016, she rode 1,600 kilometres. But she's not riding anymore because the cancer's taken a hold once again, and uh, it's taken a, a, a you know a tighter hold. And but what I've seen is the, the the that ruthless empathy that she has demonstrated for those that matter most to her, which are these children that I talk about. And um, um, there's no one person that I've seen or encountered who I think has fought harder uh, for a particular cause who is, or who has demonstrated uh, love for a particular cause more than this woman. But um, And that's the, the, the empathy that she has for them. And, and it's amazing, you know, Gary, she's, uh, she's buried over 1,000 children in her life and caring for these children. But, you know, what I find remarkable is each time I'm there with her, when I sit and I watch her when the children might be playing or dancing or she's holding one of the babies in her arms and feeding it, she has this genuine look and love in her face and her eyes. And it's like it's the first child she's ever held. And it's this, the ruthlessness comes in the, the... the, the, you know how she'll defend um, and fight for her children in the face of her own personal, uh, physical, mental, and spiritual battles that she faces, and and it's something as I talk about the just the longevity and uh, how she's been able to um, you know to lead this community of of children. Uh, for such a long time, and it's you know it, it it is this empathetic leadership, but there's this ruthlessness uh, behind it. Such a great term, mate. That's just such a beautiful story. I mean, <laughs> you listen to those stories, Pete. You think about your own world and go, God, what excuses am I making? <laughs> like, why why am I not getting after it? Like, what's what's my excuse? And it's just, you know, it's Pete. One of the things we've been tracking through the show, which is now a couple of years old. And Robbo and I have had this underlying thread of resilience and grit. And it's something you mentioned just a minute ago in one of your stories, which was beautiful. And I just, I had something I wanted to run by you because the situations you've been in being led by people and situations where you need to lead, there was a a group from the Sloan Sloan International did a, a recent report and they said that based on the research they'd done, and these guys are experts in, in resilience as a, as a topic. They said people who self-select into a leadership role tend to have a higher ability to deal with stress and hold a higher amount of resilience. Would your observations, as someone who's been there and done that at, at the cold, hard front of terrorism and disasters and the beautiful stories you tell, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think that whole uh, piece of uh, self-selection, um, as soon as you said that, I, I thought of both um, both um, um, juxtapositions almost. The, the work in, in those roles is in the police and uh, even structures like that. You know, when, 
when the Australians deployed into Thailand, there was 36 countries represented and the Australians held so many of those key leadership positions and it wasn't forced upon anyone. I don't think that there's uh, um, uh, successful or leaders with any real uh, sustainability in their roles who aren't self-selecting because you, you might be nominated, you might be tapped on the shoulder, you might be promoted within... Um, in and within an organisation, but you've had to have put your hand up at some point. And um, you know, I've, I've met with, um, uh, I worked with, you know, highly qualified people who say, you know, I'm, I'm really cool. This is my lot in life. I have no desire to take on the responsibility of of management or leadership positions. And and I just want to be a practitioner. And you go, that's really cool. So, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that even in a real structured um, organisation that there has been uh, self-selection because you wouldn't have put your hand up, you wouldn't have applied, you wouldn't have made yourself available and you wouldn't have accepted the positions. And so I think the, um, um, you, you know, and then taking that over to the examples I've just talked about with, you know, these people who have been in these positions where there is little personal or, or certainly financial reward in what they've done, um, it, it has to be the sustainability comes um, in the in that return around how they've had their soul nourished and the difference that they've made and uh, and they've decided to remain there uh, because of a big part of it, it's their clarity of purpose, I think. Mm. If you think about that and somebody takes on that role in their own mind, and you go back to a lady who is leading, not by, not by, leading by demonstration, as to openly taking on a role or stating that they are the leader just through ruthless empathy. Pete, do you think that a resilient leader can develop a collective resilient group? Yeah, I do, and I think that um, um, people. And I know you, I know that this would make sense to you from the you know the work that you've done for decades around you know uh, bringing a tribe together to to ride to raise money to fight cancer and so forth. Is that I think when you start an organisation or a movement, um, um, there'll be people who will be drawn to that initially because of you as the individual. So I will um, I will support you, Gary, in what you're doing because we're mates. But uh, I think what happens, and I've uh, seen this over the time with hands, is and 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 a lot of work that I've done in the in the not for profit and charity sector in helping the small and emerging uh, charity leaders is that they have a small group around them, which is their that's the network that they bring. But what you develop is a network who are uh, committed to and believe in the cause. And it's less about that personal friendship. You know, I think you end up with, you know, amazing friendships, but that's because they're connected to you. So I think the same um, point that you've just made is that those people want to be around that type of resilient leader because it's something that... um, aligns to their personal values or their desires or belief and um, and it's not for everyone you know and uh, when I talk about uh, May Phil um, this lady who's run that HIV home and uh, um, she can be quite polarizing uh, because of that um, 
you, you know, just how strong and committed and single-focused that she is. And uh, so, uh, but I think if you connect to what she's about, you, you'll be drawn to her. You've, you've, one thing I'm really curious about, Pete, and I love your perspective on it, is you've spoken of leadership without authority. And mm. I recently sat on an executive team and there was a guy who had assumed a role of leadership, but the conversation was all, all I, 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 mm. and the leadership role was because that person assumed the role and then used the power of that role. But then the people around weren't strong enough to stand up, in which case everybody just followed like sheep. Yeah. And it, it was it was quite evident to me and it it completely flew in the face of my own personal values and my personal beliefs. And then I read your story on leadership without authority. Can you talk me through your perspective of how how that happens and why it's so powerful? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, when we talk about or when I talk about leadership without authority, I say that um, it's the actions and reactions of people who will identify true leaders as opposed to their position. So if you, within an organisation, um, there's the known leaders and everyone um, will default to the positions of uh, those quite senior because that's what we've all been led to believe and, and it's a respect and they're in that position. They're at a higher pay grade, so they're naturally the leader. You know, an organisation like the police, you know, um, you know, I turn up at a job and uh, and you can look around and without knowing anyone uh, by name, you can you can tell by the insignia in the rank as to the level of seniority, and there becomes an inherent uh, level of respect for the seniority, and it's almost you have that that's incumbent until your actions prove otherwise. And when we have an an, an area where that that structure does not exist. So a good example of this is when there was uh, when we responded to Thailand, 450 forensic staff, 36 different countries. The rank was irrelevant because you know what uh, we were in New South Wales was different to the AFP, let alone to the French and the Germans and those from the UK. So the true leaders were because of how they acted, and I think the that point that that circumstance that that you referred to is that's normally about the personality and perhaps um, you know who's the biggest extrovert in the group but I think what remains true to the leadership without authority point is it's the actions and reactions that will identify the true leaders so they might take that stop they might take that position as leader early on and normally it's the extrovert in the room who will go yep I'm the leader here but let's let's see how their actions and reactions play out over the time of pe- that time period that they're leading for, and we'll really see if they are the true leader. So I think the the, the theory uh, remains true um, because it, it, you know it's not you just don't become the leader because you assume it. It, it is that uh, actions and reactions that will determine uh, true leaders and how long they are in that leadership position. It's interesting. That, that whole thing about it's, it's, it's been said, uh, and I've read this and heard it on podcasts, that you don't understand the true leadership qualities until you face adversity, and that's where the true colours shine mm. of anybody in any situation. And you certainly have been into, and I've, I've, I've listened to you speak, and we've done jobs together, and I've seen you tell some very 
amazing stories, graphic stories of the situations of adversity you've got to walk into. And you write about how one can grow through adversity, yet I think a lot of us think that adversity is a kind of a negative thing. But your your belief is that we can actually grow through that, that, that adversity is a growth opportunity, isn't it? Of course. I think that there's uh, uh, many examples across... Uh, um, across our, our lives where that rings true. And, um, you know, I think that the greater adversity, what it's, uh, what I've said is it, it really brings out the true character in people. And it doesn't mean you're going to like them. It just means you get to the, see the true character of people, um, a whole lot quicker. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like, um, and I haven't experienced and, and I don't pretend to know, but, um, you know, those that go off into war, like the, and, you know, when you quite literally, um, uh, your life is at stake and you're depending upon uh, someone, um, that brings you close. And um, um, and it doesn't mean, and you know, circumstances that we went through uh, in the police, why either in, you know, where, where you were f- physically at threat or whether it was just through the, uh, the, the significant loss, you know, standing... Standing in, in a temple where there was three and a half thousand bodies on the ground, and we were there to uh, try to make some sense of that and try to return those bodies uh, to families uh, throughout the world. Those that you worked with, we shared a bond and we shared an experience that um, uh, no one else but those that were there will understand, and um, and that that's a shared experience that um, will never be replaced. And and to a point, and, you know, what you've done with um, with the bike rides and the groups that you've led, you know that, uh, you know, a hard day on the bike in the wind or the rain and, you know, where you're riding long kilometres and it's hard work and you're supporting one another, you're taking the lead, someone's dropping behind. That type of stuff that builds those relationships. You get off, you have a shower and you talk about how good that was and, it's why sporting teams have the same thing, and um, and it's why you know people who work in business and corporate they they you know they, they yearn for these types of opportunities to bring people together. And you know, decades ago they were doing some really you know cheesy um, team building exercises, and I, <laughs> there's uh, you know there's so much more that can be done to build. Um, engagement through shared experiences and I think uh, adversity and we see it in communities when there's you know crisis or disaster within the local community how quickly people come together and you know you might never speak to you 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 don't know the name of your neighbours but then if there's a crisis or something happens well then there's a a shared bond that you've gone through so no question that um, uh, adversity uh, brings out the true character and, and uh, allows you to see that in people. You know, hearing you talk about a temple and the situations that you have seen and been through and shared with your your fellow um, community workers and or teammates, do you ever have dark moments, Pete, where those sorts of things come back to you? in your conscious mind where it starts to, because I've always wondered about police or the military or people working as paramedics with what they see and does it eventually just all pile up where it starts to become part of your conscious mind and 
does that happen for Peter Baines? And if it does, how do you how do you make sense of that? How do you deal with it? Yeah, it's a it's a, a really good question and good point. And uh, uh, sadly, for many people, um, it does. And um, and I think uh, what we see now is that it's um, it's spoken about more than it ever was. And uh, uh, the, you know the culture uh, when I joined the the police and and um, you could never talk about or show weakness in that area and it was all dealt with by either suppressing it or drinking or whatever your vice was and um, um, and as a as a community we've recognised that that's not the way to deal with things and and it's okay to uh, uh, to have those problems and and you know we're as organisations, and you know, I left the police uh, at the end of 2008. But there was work that was being done there. Part of it to support the group, uh, you know, the staff, but also part of get part of it to mitigate the exposure to the organisation. But uh, you know, and I have um, uh, many, uh, many good friends who I worked with uh, uh, from the, the forensic area uh, through to Bali and Thailand who. Um, uh, and it, it can creep up on you. You know, it's not like uh, you break an arm or, or so forth, and you know instantly you have a problem. And uh, and um, and you know, and even within the last couple of months, I've had uh, contact from guys that I worked with, you know, over ten years ago now, who are uh, only now starting to come out of. Uh, um, the darkness and uh, where they, um, you know, where they, you know, contributed, and, and it's such a challenge for you because the the guys would, uh, you know, one day they're leading these teams, they're making this huge impact and in a meaningful role, and then they wake up and they go, I can't go to work today, I just can't front that and face it again, and so then they're at home and mum and the kids are going off to school and work and. And what does uh, dad do if it's dad or if it's mum? You know, their their life is then filled with watching TV, thinking about how sick they are and going to medical appointments. And there's, you know, how do you build a life which has meaning and the focus? And all the time that I was in the, the that area, we never saw people who went off sick with with that type of uh, illness uh, make a successful return because it's. Uh, you know, it's just not uh, framed up to support you, and uh, and it's and and they would leave, and and you know the question, how does it impact on me? I I've been um, incredibly fortunate and um, and lucky, and uh, you know that I, I think I've been okay with it, and that I've been able to, and I think a big part, Gary, was that I've. I've moved through different roles and had different opportunities uh, so that I wasn't stuck in the one place. And, you know, it's been uh, it's been uh, 10 years since I, I left that area now. But, you know, the biggest thing is, uh, and it might sound strange, um, you know, what, I've, what I do now and what I've been doing for a while, but what I miss about it is, is the feeling of... Um, Making a significant difference and a meaningful contribution to those people, and it's um, you know I think it's uh, working in those areas has uh, there's limitations to exposure, 
but um, you know, it's an easy thing to say. Well, let's limit the time that people are involved in there. But you know, if one of your kids happened to be involved in the, the horrendous crimes that we're investigating. You don't want someone who's only got three years. You want someone who's been doing it for 20 years. You want the best. And uh, and the guys that are doing it, they want to do it. And it's a, it's a difficult, difficult um, thing. And it's not as though that it's um, there's a formula where we say, you know, A, B, C will equal this. You know, it, it's not like that. And why I got out okay, I don't know. I'm just thankful that I did. Do you think, Peter, ties back to what you spoke of earlier in the show is that purposeful resilience. I know it's a term you use, but is do you think the reason you got out and you've done well and you've inspired thousands and done wonderful work, is that the reason why you might, perhaps in your mind that you've, you've, you've found another purpose? Like it wasn't serving in the force, but you were mm. able to be of service in another way, which allows you, because for you, for you not to become one of the stats, and it, it, sadly it happens too much in the military. I mean, we hear this across yeah. the world. We had a, a Navy SEAL on the show late last year and he spoke about it and he's dedicated his whole world to providing vets with mortgages. So his purpose now is to help guys that come out of the force, how do I get on my feet, get my home? And he has he's dedicated himself to that and his whole purpose is based. Do you think that that resilience that he and or you have comes from that, that purposeful resilience? Yeah, and I think part of it is that is certainly accurate. I think it's that there's, um, and when I've looked at, and I've spoken to many people about this, and it's a question I've often been asked at the end of the keynote is uh, um, about this. And I think what it was when I, if I can look at it and say, I think that, if there is something I can attribute it to, it's that my time in the roles kept changing or my roles kept changing. So I I was on the tools as a forensic investigator investigating major and serious crime and uh, then I got promoted to be a a sergeant that was still doing it, but then I was leading a team. Then I came back to Sydney as an inspector where I was managing a bigger team, going to bigger jobs. Then I went on to a state operations coordinator. Then I did this, and and things just kept changing. And um, and I think where a big problem for the, the guys that I saw was that they didn't have an end in sight. So either because of their geographical location that they might be living, working in the bush and think, well, this is my role as a forensic crime scene examiner. Um, I'm in my early uh, 40s and I have two options here. Sell up, relocate the family and go back to Sydney. And for many, they might not be able to afford it or they might choose not to do that. Or if they're going to do that, the, the, the wife and kids says, on your own because we're not going back. Or they have to leave their area of speciality and go back into general policing. Now, after you've done general policing and you've got out, you don't want to go back. And uh, so these guys then at the age of 40 and uh, uh, so, well, go, okay, well, I've got another 15 years of working on call, doing exactly what I'm doing now. And, and that's where I think a lot of it comes, the burnout comes as they go on. You know, they go to bed, um, you know, every second week or a week um, with the knowing that they're going to get called out. It might be, at, uh, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, at 1 o'clock in the morning. It might be at 10 o'clock and then again at 1 o'clock in the morning. And the nature of the, 
it wears you down. And I think that because I was able to keep moving through these different areas and then kept having something that I was reaching and working for, which is exactly where it is with hands now, the continual challenge and the continue, you know, well, I need to keep work, I need to focus, I have this purpose, I have this, you know, um, thing I'm working towards. And, the, you know, what you talk about with the Navy SEAL, I can see how what he's doing drives him, occupies his mind and fulfills him with, um, you know, a good intent and, and reason to get out of bed and, and, you know, for lots of the guys I used to work with, I think that reason to get out of bed, um, it, it, it goes. With the people you've worked with and around, Peter, over throughout your career, how important a virtue do you think humility is in terms of a leader or somebody who's being successful? Uh, well, personally, it's something that, um, um, and I, it's probably uh, important to for me it's really important because it's uh, um, I'm an introvert by nature so um, I'm drawn to people who um, who have that humility who um, are more in that space but I think that there's other people who will be who are real extroverts who will be um, you know, you, you think about the leader of the U.S. Uh, at the moment, and uh, who uh, has no humility, and and how did he? It, obviously, people, obviously, people voted for Trump, um, which still is a staggering thing to to think. But uh, you know, obviously, people, you know, are, are warm to that, and. Um, are excited by that, where for me it turns your stomach to think that, you know, like how could you follow a leader like that? How could you follow a person like that? So I guess um, um, I find that um, I find humility inspiring and admirable in uh, in not just leaders but anyone. But, um, you know, that's just what I'm drawn to. So. In your work with the charity Hands Across the Water, uh, going into Bali to see terrorist acts or going into devastating situations where Mother Nature has turned upon us and you've been called in to put things right again. Is there a moment in your mind that you found yourself in that stopped you at a moment you still reflect upon that changed you as a man? Was there one moment where you know what, this was a defining moment. This changed This changed the whole way I look at the world. Was it something that you recall in your mind that really had that impact on you? There's certainly been um, plenty of moments that uh, have stopped me. And uh, um, as you were asking the question, one of the things that uh, um, before you finished the questions that came straight to me was, Standing inside the um, at the uh, in the Sari Club in Bali after the bombing and uh, uh, within the crime scene tape and this was in a couple of days after the bombing and uh, uh, you know all the bodies had come out and, and there was a massive hole in the ground where the Mitsubishi L three hundred van had been detonated and and. Um, um, standing, uh, and we knew that it was, uh, you know, there was a suicide bomber who'd gone into Paddy's bar and 
and the van had been parked and detonated and and uh, standing on the other side of the crime scene tape from where I was, probably only uh, five metres away, was a um, a man who had a, a full uh, a, a motorbike helmet on, the mask was closed, had a backpack on, and uh, was just standing there looking at me, and um, and it was this uh, moment of, you know, just uh, um, was he there to do harm? And uh, our time in Bali was uh, was a really really challenging time because we were. Uh, the hotel where we were staying at the Kartika Plaza in in Bali, there was constant bomb threats at the hotel. We had to have the military who were guarding the hotel because the hotel was the only hotel in Bali that was full and it was full of police. And uh, there were threats to the hotel. And it was a, I, you know, I don't know if it was a defining moment or if it changed me as a person, as, as the question was, but it's, it was certainly something that uh, had an impact. And then I guess um, the impact of working in Thailand, and it was a completely different role. You know, when we were in Bali, it was a criminal act. It was a terrorist act. It was an intention. Um, it, it was an intentional act. Thailand was a humanitarian response and the response from the people. And, and, I, and I guess to answer your question that, I don't know that there was a defining moment, but there was a moment where working with um, both the victims and then the people in Thailand, you know, a lady who, um, you know, I met and when we used to return the bodies, if it was a foreign national, a member of the police would receive the body from us. If it was a Thai national, a member of that family would receive the body from us and and um, this lady came from a very modest family in that she couldn't afford a coffin and she turned up in a, a beat-up utility and uh, to collect the body of her son. And uh, uh, and we'd been caught by this once before where we had to hand a loved one back in a body bag and uh, we said, no more, no one deserves the indignity of receiving their child in a body bag. It doesn't matter who you are, no one deserves that. So... We bought some uh, coffins ourselves, and so when this lady turned up, we gave her the body of the son, and we gave her a coffin. And um, she had more grace and dignity and compassion uh, than anyone I've ever met in my life. You know, she had to be at the lowest point in her life, but the way she responded to us, the thanks that she had for us, it just made me feel so incredibly bad. I couldn't do more for her. But I didn't meet her once. She didn't come twice, but three times she came and collected the bodies of her three children. And and um, each time she had that same level of great dignity and compassion. And and I think when I went back to, back to the, the, the police or back to Australia, I, I then went on and did this two years of comment in the counter-terrorism area. Then it was the end of the two years of comment. And, and I was uh, a New South Wales police said, you know, you've got to come back. You've been gone for two years. We've been paying you. You now need to come back. And uh, and I went back and I asked for 12 months leave without pay. And I wanted to focus on the charity because it was just getting some traction. And I thought if I stop now, it'll just fold. And after 12 months leave without pay, and they said no. And I said, okay, I resigned. And, and I think that there was... as not necessarily a moment, but I think, you know, often of that lady and how she responded and 
um, you know, to receiving the bodies of the children. I think about the people that we've met, the, the way they responded. And, and I also thought about the culture and the group that I was in with the police and, uh, um, you know, the, the higher up you go, the less uh, exposure you have to the actual uh, field work and you end up, you know, sitting around debating and arguing whether you should have 16 or 18-inch monitors, you know, and you go, really? Is that, is that what I'm doing? Is that why I've progressed to this level so we can be having these, you know, meeting after meeting and the cops were good at having meetings and all you seemed to achieve was setting a date for a next meeting, you know, and mm-hmm. and I just went, wow, is this, uh, is this what's ahead? And I think... It was a time in Thailand. There were moments of, you know, meeting families and the moment that, you know, I met a lady who, it was so funny, I spoke at a conference um, in Sydney only last week and I described how this lady um, walked, she was an Australian and came to the site where we were returning all the bodies and I put my hand out to shake hands with her because I'd never met her before. And she just walked straight in, put her arms around me and hugged me and put her head on my shoulder and started crying. And I'd never met this lady before and she was an Australian and uh, what I learned was that she she lost her daughter in the tsunami and uh, we had found her daughter that her daughter was dead and uh, her daughter was on the holiday of a lifetime and um, it was a honeymoon and um, uh, I learnt that the, you know, we, we'd found her son-in-law as well, and he was dead. And uh, uh, this couple uh, had been together for a number of years prior, and and uh, they were expecting a baby, and of course the baby died as well. And you know, this lady that I was hugging, she lost her daughter, a son-in-law, a future grandchild, and any hope of any future grandchildren. And I told this story at a at a conference last week, and. Uh, um, at the end of the conference, a, a guy walked up and he said, that man you were talking about, the son-in-law? I said, yep. He said his name was Christian Knott, wasn't it? And I said, it certainly was. He, he married Moy Vogel. He said, I was the best man at his wedding. Oh, and I you know, was just like, wow. And there was just, you know, meeting people like that, it was... Uh, I guess it was a series of defining moments that led me to the point where, you know, when it came time to leave the police, but it wasn't an insignificant decision um, to walk away from a career like that. But in the same uh, breath, it was an easy decision, easy decision to make because my time had come. You know, I'd, I'd done what I'd needed to do there, I guess, and and um, it was time to do something else. If we continue with that peter we continue but we also rewind we talked about the growth through adversity and that i mean they're beautiful stories you've shared and that there can't be any more adverse situations to have to face up from that from a parent a mate you having to deal with it but if i think back to that conversation we just had the growth for you is that now you can take that experience and your new direction into corporates and you're now working with corporates going in to talk to them about well not just the fact they should but how they can uh, benefit from proper engagement with the community what and what I'm curious about is that I hear it talked about a lot 
it's something that is spoken about a lot. I think a lot of organizations play lip service to it. I don't know if any organ many organizations truly get down to the emotional core of the difference it can make and truly embracing it. You must have some wonderful examples of people you've worked with in the corporate, like an organization that's taken this to heart and done it properly. Can you, you don't have to mention names, but could you give us an example of how the work you've done, how a corporate organization is truly embracing this and helping the community? Yeah, I think that there's a real, um, there's a real shift and uh, where, and you know, if I understand what you're talking about there is that, that relationship and, and, and desire from org, for organisations to uh, to work within the community and community partners and, and do it. Yeah, in and and through the whole way. company, like not, yeah, not just yeah. the marketing people saying, we'll give you 10 grand and put your logo on our things. Yep. I mean, I'm truly yep. becoming DNA. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's, uh, you, you know, the title of my uh, last book that I wrote was called uh, Doing Good by Doing Good. And it was a, a blueprint for organisations who, through shared value, uh, built stronger organisations by working with community partners. And uh, um, but um, it came back as a as a profit centre to them. And and it was a it was a line that I kind of drifted down from the work that I'd done with hands as to how we raised our money and working with the corporate. So I was working on both sides of the fence and um, and I was asked to uh, write a book on it and after a while I said, yeah, okay. And we, so I wrote this book and, and but it's, and it's part of consulting work I do with organisations now is, and, you know, you talk about there are organisations who do it and do it well and it's often the case where there is that real value, values alignment, there's a, uh, um, and it's driven by a champion within the organisation who uh, sees the value. And um, and I work with uh, two clients really from a um, from a consulting point of view around building meaningful shared experiences and meaningful CSR programs. Because as you know from the work that you've done, uh, Gary, working with business to to bring. Um, you know, an enormous amount of funding into cancer research in that area is that there, there, there can be a real um, uh, philanthropy. And I think a lot of organisations who talk about uh, corporate social responsibility uh, are actually confused because what they've got is just philanthropy. They're making making a donation. And as you say, they're putting their logo on, on a car, a jersey, a building, whatever it is, and saying this is sponsorship. And that's part of what how that positions them as a business. But then there's organisations who go, okay, let's actually do it a whole lot deeper. And, and the thing is for the businesses, when they do it well, then they get increased sense of engagement. They get higher levels of morale. They, be, they are able to retain their employees better. They become attractive to future employees. They open up new business opportunities. They retain their customers. There's a whole lot of value of doing it well, apart from it's good for the community or good for those that are benefiting. And, and my real my position on it is that if it's not good for the business, well then they're not doing it effectively. And as a charity, 
I need my corporate partners to do well out of the relationship because if they don't, as soon as business takes a turn, as soon as the market are a bit uh, low, then the support to charity will stop. So I need to, as the head of a charity, I need to make the relationship I have with my corporate supporters beneficial to them, a profit-centred to them, because then I know I can rely upon the money. And and you, your question was, are businesses doing it and is there an increased sense of those who are doing it for the right reasons? And whether it's because of the, those I'm drawn to, whether it's that's the circle I find myself moving in, but I know certainly within the community I'm working and those that come within my community, there is that desire to do it more effectively. It's half time on the Mojo Show and time to pause. For a cause. Hi guys, my name is Joel Pilgrim and I'm from the organization OneWave. We're raising awareness for mental health through surfing and the wellness of the ocean. The idea is to get together and to start conversations around mental health and to really help people understand that it's absolutely okay to not be okay. We dress up in fluoro and we meet up at beaches all around the world at Fluoro Friday at 6.30 in the morning on Fridays. And uh, we've also got the one-wave surfing experience for people with higher mental health needs to get together and really feel what it's like to learn how to surf and to turn their life around through um, you know, recovery and you know, functional recovery in a real way. So get on our website, onewaveisallittakes.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to love your support. There's also a chance to donate and to change people's lives. And, and I guess um, the, the fact of the matter is the only way we're going to really change an issue that so many people battle alone, being mental health, is by standing strong together. The Mojo Radio Show. You know, just on the um, – and I don't know if you can answer this for me, Peter, but there is on, – on the workforce and let's call it organisational change that's trending across the world – Robbo and I have been talking to a few people of recent times the last year or so who've become digital nomads. So they are on the road, living out of, when we spoke before we started recording about Airbnb, they're, they've got a, a van or they've got a tiny home or they're moving every four months and all they need is a laptop and they're making enough to survive and they've got this lifestyle. And what I've found with a few uh, executives that I'm working with who are in leadership positions the first thing they've got to do is get their head around the fact that the workforce is changing and having to have somebody come in and check in every morning at eight o'clock and check out at six o'clock and have them in meetings and stuff is kind of done. And there's a new way of doing it. And I, I suspect a few people are going to struggle with how do I lead a remote workforce when people want to design a life, which doesn't mean being in an office, still getting the work done and focusing on the outcome. Do you have any experience now with your leadership work as to examples of how psychologically a leader can approach having a remote workforce? Yeah, I think the uh, it's something that uh, it's an interest, interesting question you ask um, me and uh, um, maybe um, uh, six months ago my views would have been different on it. Um, you know, since I left the police, I've, I've been one of those um, people you speak of where uh, I mightn't have lived in an Airbnb but um, are travelling and uh, surviving through uh, the back of your laptop, you know, and, uh, and speaking and, and all of that and, and it works for me. And, um, and uh, six months ago, um, I changed things in a, in a quite significant way at, uh, at hands and 
Um, we, we established a social enterprise in 2011 that sits next to the charity and really um, brought that into full operations this year and, and we've changed uh, our branding and identity and, and it's all gone into what's called the hands group now. So we there's a, a real corporate side to what we do then there's the charity side and, and uh, we've invested heavily in resources and uh, in people um, and built a, a team um, that are employed uh, through the social enterprise and undertake commercial activities and uh, the charity benefits from that. So they're not employed by the they're employed by the social enterprise. But the point I make of that is now that we've got a workforce of, um, and it's only a small team, but there's nine of us that come together and, um, um, and uh, their condition of employment is that uh, uh, half the time, if not more, is they work from home and then they come together, and we're, we're, you know we're together one or two days a week for the full uh, full day. And um, and I think it's uh, with the guys that I'm working with, the uh, uh, they absolutely love uh, the freedom of uh, uh, being able to uh, get up in the morning, be there to see the kids off, have breakfast, and uh, step into their office uh, with coffee in their tracksuit pants and. And uggies in the winter, and uh, work, and be be productive. But it also gives them the opportunity of going, okay, well, there's you know something on at the kids' school today. I'll go and I can be I can be a parent. I can be there. And then I know from a productivity point of view, we're getting so much more out of them because of how happy they are. And then the the only uh, you know caveat to that is that there then has to be a level of presence. Uh, by the the the, uh, the leaders and uh, um, and we create that in every week, but by being present and 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 being there supporting them. So just working from home on your own, um, if you're not having that type of interaction and coming together, can be lonely as well. So um, I think that um, there's that real desire. It works for so many people. And it's not going to be for everyone. And I know that when we were recruiting for uh, one of our marketing and comms uh, uh, positions early or late last year when we were doing the recruitment, there was, you know, reading through applications, there was some talks about love being in the team environment and it was all this and uh, the alarm bell went for me. They're not going to be able to enjoy working on their own from home uh, three or four days a week and only coming together once. They want that real, they needed that office environment, you know, let's go for coffee, let's catch up what you do on the weekend, where other people go, not so much. And uh, so, yeah, I think the real growth in it. It's a real issue though, Peter. I was um, saying to somebody yesterday at a job that uh – in America, isolation is one of the biggest health issues facing mm. the country. And I've got to say, anecdotally, I've heard a lot of stories in the last sort of month as I've been curious about this of people who are working from home and their first year, a guy just said to me last week, it's the first year was great, you know, tracking tracky and doing my work and getting it all done and yeah. Skype calls and I'd go and do a job here and a job there. But he said, now I'm in my you know end of my second year. Now I'm really lonely. Now I'm actually starting to really feel the isolation, which is why I think workspaces like WeWork and these sorts of yeah. collaborative environments are going to be so big and so successful and they're expanding across the world because we need that. We need the combination of both. We want our own time to get stuff done and mobility, mm. 
but we need to have people around us to make. And is it is it a significance thing, or is it a is it a growth thing? Like why? I why? I think it's company. You know, like I had um, uh, for probably about four or five years. I had a, maybe not that long, maybe three or four years. I had a. Uh, um, uh, uh, an EA who was working for me for my personal business, and um, uh, we both lived on the northern beaches. Uh, she was a mum and uh, had a couple of young kids, and uh, um, husband worked in corporate, and uh, she worked in corporate as an EA, and then left to have her her children. And then, as they started to get a little bit older, she said, "Okay, I want to re-engage." And so she worked for me. She worked from home. And um, and all that flexibility for the kids just suited them as a family down perfectly. So when one of the kids was sick, they didn't have to send them off to preschool when they shouldn't have. They were able to stay there. She she was able to do all the things she wanted to do during the day, and she'd work for me. She'd do a lot of her work after the kids had gone to bed. But we ended up getting to the point where she just said to me, "I just I just miss being around people." and uh, um, and, you know, like we would catch up, but, you know, perhaps I'm not the best company, you know, like I didn't, I didn't, take, you know, meet that need in her. And it was, she said, you know, she'd gone from uh, one working in, in, in Combank as a senior BA to that type of environment to, um, you know, her work was, you know, she, it was, she was still working as an EA. It was the same thing, but different, but she just missed that. Um, you know, that environment, the company. And, um, you know, I think for the work that you and I do as speakers and travellers, like you you spend a lot of time on your own, but then, um, you know, this week uh, I, I might have been in front of, you know, seven, 800 people speaking at different conferences and, and um, you know, you're flying on planes or in airports and, and um, you know, so you can have that fix. And then you get back and go, oh, I love the time alone. And, and that's where it's working really well for our team is, you know, we had uh, uh, one of our ladies who's been with us in the finance area for, um, for about um, uh, two years now. And she worked at Newcastle, just worked from home as a bookkeeper. And, and then when we start change things this year, I said, you know, Jen, I want you to come down and just be part of the team. And, um, and uh, as a bookkeeper, she doesn't have a lot to from a work perspective, contribute to what we're doing when we do our whip round of the morning. And, um, you know, because there's travel, she said, oh, you know, I said, I only come every couple of weeks just so you know what's going on, just in catch up. She enjoys the experience so much. She travels down now every week from Newcastle to spend the day with us at Piedmont and then she travels home because of what it's given her. So that, that, that anecdotal evidence that you're hearing, uh, you know, I can... I've got personal examples. I think you're spot on. There's got to be a, there's got to be that uh, that mix and that blend. We um, just, if, I'm conscious of your time, so I'll let you go in a sec. But we uh, we did an interview with a lady called Suzanne Mercier, and Suzanne came out of very high level leadership role in advertising agencies in the past, and now. Suzanne spends her time talking to people who suffer from the imposter syndrome. And it's, it's just, it's quite remarkable. And since we spoke to her maybe six or eight weeks ago, the number of times I've seen blogs and stories and posts referring to the imposter syndrome. And when I speak of it in a group, 
it, it's quite remarkable how many heads you see nodding with people who go through this. And I suspect it's a large proportion of people go through it. From your experience for yourself, Peter, with what you've been through and knowing that you've had your own personal things, which you wrote about in your book, uh, and that the, the stuff that you've seen and worked through your working environment and the stuff you do through hands, how does Peter Baines handle that voice of doubt? Like what's, do you have a process or a go-to that you use to handle that voice? Cause you are a very focused, determined, centered guy. Do you have the voice? And if you do, how do you handle it? Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's doubt and, and, um, um, that, that sits across many areas of, of what I do. And, uh, and I think it's, um, you know, maybe it's that inbuilt um, uh, you know, almost fear as to uh, I don't want to pick up the snake. There's a fear here because it might bite me. And we've learned through evolution that getting bitten by snakes is not necessarily healthy. So there's a fear there. So maybe it's mm. along the same type of line is, well, fear allows you to check and uh um, and say, is it you know right to go? And uh, um, and I think that there's uh, you know there's examples I can talk about where we worked in Bali after the bombings, and we had one of Australia's most senior police officers there who was so fearful of making the wrong decision, he didn't make any, and uh, he was just fearful of getting it wrong. And but as an organisation, we would have been better if he made the wrong decision than making none at all because it would have at least allowed us to uh, to move forward uh, and go, okay, well, let's not go down that path. Let's come up with another direction. Let's try this rather than that. And, you know, you talk to, you hear from, you know, true on, entrepreneurs and uh, who say yeah, say, yeah, look, I've failed more times than, than I've succeeded and I, and I just keep going. You know, there's a, a lady that's in Australia at the moment and, you um, um, for the Writers' Festival when I heard her interviewed on the ABC essay. And she had like 486 or 436, I think it's 486 rejections uh, to her first book. And, uh, um, you know, and how you keep going with that. And like, geez, you know, like that's not something that I would, I could persist in. But I think there's also, um, there comes a point, and, it, and it's an interesting um, thing for me in that uh, uh, with our board, as any board, you should have uh, different people, different skill sets, and and um, you know not all um, risk adverse or, or or but not all you know uh, the opposite. And um, um, and uh, and I think that one of the things we've just just agreed on a really exciting. Uh, project uh, at hands, which has been my dream for about seven or eight years, and and uh, when I first saw this, I went, you know, I'll never feel like I've, you know, been successful or made a difference at hands until we achieve this. And we talked about it, you know, on and off for a long time, but never did anything about it. And part of it, you know, it's going to be a five or ten million dollar project, and 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 it'll be on top of the commitments that we have now, and. And and I think that one of the things for me around that is you start something new, you start something which is big, and and you don't have all of the answers. 
but you don't even know what the questions are going to be in those early days. But I think that, you know, clarity comes with action. And uh, if you wait until you've got all of the answers, if you wait until the time is right, um, you know, to do things in life, that um, that next thing you know, they passed you by. And, and it'd be no different for you when you speak, that, you know, I was speaking yesterday and had people walk up and, you know, the client said to me and the group I was talking to, uh, you know, they were, his words, not mine, he said, there's a lot of really jaded people in here. And he said, uh, um, you know, what you've done, he said, I haven't seen that reaction in them before. And um, he said, it's really sparked something. And he was speaking complimentary about it and uh, had people walk up and go, oh, I wish I could or or this or that. And, and it's just, it's easy to put excuses in the front. And, uh, you know, it's easy to say, well, no, well, we're busy or we've got this or the kids or this or create reasons not to. I think the, um, that, uh, um, and, and doubt just makes you check along the way. But, uh, you know, if, if it becomes uh, the overriding thing, well, I think there's a good chance you could live a life of regret. You know, there is a bunch of stuff that I really admire about you. Uh, your book is terrific. The work you do, your speaking is outstanding. And I think one thing, Robbo, that people probably don't know, we've spoken about Hands Across the Water, but since its inception, Hands Across the Water hasn't spent one cent of donors' money on admin since the start. That would be a rarity, I would imagine. An anomaly. Is that the word you're looking that for? That was the word I went searching yeah. for. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. Just, couldn't, just couldn't spell it. Um, it's just, it, it's something that I, it's just, I wish there was more acknowledgement of that, Peter, because it's one of the gripes that I've got with charities today that aren't focused on margin. I think money raised is incredibly important. Where it goes is absolutely yeah. important. But to me, people like yourself and even Steve Waugh, you know, who hold themselves to yeah. a standard of flow through where I know a lot of, charities that upsets me is that the flow through to margins just don't don't stack up because of money that's paid to senior executives and wages and lunches and everything else so mate congratulations on it, uh, it hands across the water is, is a beautiful charity you're doing wonderful work if somebody if somebody wants to find out more about you your books and the charity hands uh where do you want to send them to, mate? Yeah, I think if they just go to, and thanks for all those compliments about um, hands, and and I just say that I think the like we we we've created a structure where we ring fenced all of donations, and we can continue down that path because of the company that I established that supports a charity, and we've now raised over twenty million dollars, and all of donors' money has gone exactly where you said, but. You know, I think that it's important on the people to look and be able to have that transparency so they can make their own decisions around uh, what charities spend on admin and fundraising. And, you know, for an organisation to grow, they have to invest in resourcing, but there is a tipping point. And uh, uh, we're only the, the, you know, the custodians of the money. We're only, you know, it's not ours, we're just passing it through. So, you know, we should do that. You know, with the least amount of um, uh, cost, but also investing in the growth of the 
of the organisation. But, yeah, if people wanted to know more, I think if they just went to peterbaines.com.au, so B-A-I-N-E-S, and um, there's links through the hands, there's links to all my stuff. And, uh, yeah, so I appreciate the chat and it's great to have a chat with you, Gary and Robbo. You've actually inspired me. I'm going to um, I'm going to start my own charity. It's okay, called, um, this will be good. It's called Hands, Tim Tams across, across, Tim hands Tim across the Tim Tams. For, um, hands across the Tim Tams. Hands across the Tim Tams. It's, it's, uh, it's, 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 um, it's all about people who sort of can't afford their own Tim Tams. So people donate yeah, no. mm-hmm. Tim Tams that we can mm-hmm. distribute. But there is a 10% tax. <laughs> one, one Tim Tam per packet. One yes. Tim Tam per packet <laughs> yes. has, has to go to admin. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's gold. It is gold. Uh, that's gold. Finally, some gold comes out of the studio. Finally, <laughs> finally, we've left it all to Bainsy to do all the work. Finally, something comes out of the studio. That's right. The last hour was worth something. Well, Peter, I can't thank you enough. It's been an absolute delight reconnecting with you, mate. And I, I've got to say, apart from anything else, I mean, I love the work you do. You know I'm a fan. But the fact that you've bought yourself a farm and yeah. you're only a stone's throw in country terms from our back gate, uh, mate, we're going to see a lot of each other. Well, it'd be, um, be wrong and negligent for us not to catch up now. <laughs> but the, the problem is, though, mate, you don't want to go to Gary's place Unless you're a big Willie Nelson fan, okay. So, okay. I, so I'd be meeting him at the pub. Cafe sounds good. Yeah, cafe pub, yeah. something like. Please tell me you're not yeah. into country music. No, no, oh, thank no, God no, for no. that. Okay, you cool. will be. You will be, brother. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Once we'll I got see. my claws in you, <laughs> it's the cowboy. It's the cowboy way, Pete. Thanks, yeah, mate. Cool. All right, great chatting. The Mojo Radio Show. Tell you what, Bainsy nailed it. Bainsy. 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 Bainsy, <laughs> Robbo and Gazza. That's got a good ring to it. Bainsy, Robbo and Gazza. We could hands do that. Hands across the Tim Tams. <laughs> <laughs> mm, hands across the Monte Carlos it is at the moment. Now, I'm going to take you back to the mailbag. Have you checked your email this morning, Mulder? No, why? Because I received something unsettling and I wondered if you'd gotten it too. The Mojo Mailbag. We promised our loyal Mojo radio show listeners, everybody who sits on the bus, we promised we would get Smithy. Mm. Smithy. Get Smithy on the show, get him back on the show as mm. our doctor, our resident in-house doctor, and he does yep. get a bit of a workout. Yep. Um, to talk about gut and inflammation, yep. we had a reader letter. Run that for us very quickly, Robbo. Uh, to tell us about our listener. It was uh, the McGilster. And uh, he sent us a quick letter saying that he had had a bit of a bike accident a bit over a year ago, uh, broke his back and spent seven months in hospital with a golden staph infection. And he wrote to us wanting to know about the gut and what he could do to heal his gut from all the damage that the antibiotics had caused. So um, we thought we might get Smitty on the line. And since you suggested that we make a new segment out of it, I've come up with a little opener. He's the sweetheart of the stem cell. The enemy of the antigen. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. On the Mojo Radio Show, it's Smithy. So we've locked ourselves <laughs> in now. We've, got, we've made ourselves a new segment. <laughs> well, we better do it. I guess in saying that, folks, uh, now we have a segment we're going to run. If you've got a question you'd like to ask our resident in-house Dr. Smithy, 
Michael Smith about anything to do with health and wellness around that uh, that laneway, just send us an email, folks, or send us a note through Facebook, and we'll uh, we'll put it to Smithy. But this week. Let's get him on the line. We're going to talk about the gut antibiotics and what we do to heal after having the antis. Is he there? All right, hang on. Let me just find him here. I've got his Skype address somewhere. He's moved to Canada. Hang on. Here we go. Hello, it's Michael from Planet Naturopath. Smitty, Robbo and Gaz, how are you, man? Uh, g'day, guys. Smitty. 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 <laughs> Hey, uh, Robbo just said you've moved to Vancouver, is that right? Yeah, Vancouver Island, little place, Victoria. So a change from the tropical Queensland. Wow. And it's uh, a big change. So you you are actually living the digital nomad lifestyle, mate. So you've you've kept your business. You're doing it, what, online or something? Is that what you're doing? That's right, yeah. I'm doing it all from here to clients all over the world. We just do video consultations now. We have a special video conferencing platform. And it's just like being in the same room. Wow. It saves people uh, traveling for miles to come and see me. Well, thankfully, we're not on video today because Robbo's here (laughs) in a very small Divinals T-shirt, which is more like a boob tube. Yeah. Uh, he's got it all hanging out. So if it was this, if this was a naturopath call by video, you'd have hung up. Actually, I've just noticed Chrissy's about three inches high and a foot wide. (laughs) What's going on there? (laughs) Now, Smithy, we have rung you for a reason. Uh, we've created a brand new segment because of, you know how we are, we do things on the fly. We've created a brand new segment called Ask Smithy because we've got something to ask you. Mm. Um, we got some mail during the week from one of our listeners asking a question, which is the French for question. Uh, Robbo's going to give you the rundown and then we're going to have a chat about it and see whether you can answer it for us. Yeah, look, uh, mate, um, uh, uh, a listener of ours called Pat McGill, the McGillster, as we've come to know him and love him, um, or the McGillinator, um, was out riding his bike last year in training for a, a, a cycling event and was sadly hit by a car. He broke his back. Um, the result of that was obviously a stint in hospital and a bout of golden staff for which he was treated for seven months with antibiotics. Now, the original note from his email was asking about Gary's kombucha recipe because he wanted to try and get his gut back on track, which is part of the reason we called you. But I guess the first question would be, after such a long stint on antibiotics, what's that actually doing to our gut in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. Seven months is an amazing long time to be on antibiotics. And I don't, I'd be wondering why he's on that for such a long time because if it hasn't killed the infection within the month, you'd be wanting to try different things. Mm. But what it does is it kills – not only does it kill a lot of the beneficial bacteria or the pathogenic bacteria, it'll kill all the beneficial bacteria. So you're kind of left with – no bacteria, which leaves like a clean slate. And the type of microorganisms that often will thrive then are other pathogenic bacteria or bacteria like Klebsiella, which is known as a commensal bacteria. So it's not good or bad. It's supposed to be there in small amounts, but after antibiotics, it often gives a chance to thrive, which can lead to things like uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and a lot of the symptoms that people get. The... Bacteria is interesting, Smithy, because we have been educated primarily by marketers, brand people, and the media that bacteria is bad. So every time a child touches something, we wipe their hands, wash your hands, bacteria is bad. What we're now discovering, though, is we're cleaning ourselves to within an inch of our life, and we're actually cleaning away all these beneficial bacteria. 
just give us a, a summary. In the gut itself, we actually need bacteria in the gut, don't we? We, we need it. And tell me what their job is. Yeah, we need the bacteria. And there's, there's more bacteria. You're more bacteria than person. There's more bacterial cells than Gary and Robbo cells combined. <laughs> and Is that a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a... It's a um, like they need us just as much as we need them, mm. but certain ones are pathogenic, and so you don't want those. And they're the ones going to cause problems. But even if there's an imbalance in your good or bacteria that's supposed to be there, that can affect your immune system, your mood, like lead to anxiety, depression, like skin problems. Virtually any health condition can come back to the gut, and that's what you know naturopaths and been saying for years, but it's now being scientifically validated with all this research they're doing. So it is, uh, yeah, it's really important. So we're going to hear more and more. It's it's been something I've spoken about before in the show, Smithy. We're going to, I think, we're going to hear more and more about gut health and these bacteria and making that that gut company in our gut work harder. And the same thing on our skin. And we spoke to a lady from Mother Dirt, Yasmina, who runs a company who actually makes products for the skin, which are made from dirt only because of the healthy bacteria. I think because, you know, our, our listener had been in hospital, they had seven operations and been in and out of hospital, obviously a lot, which is why there was such a long period on antis. However, I heard Rhonda Patrick, who's an expert in the gut and health and wellness, and you and I have spoken before about Rhonda's work, and she said that even having one Nurofen Panadol Advil can adversely affect the gut, the gut lining and the bacteria that, of which we speak. How do we, if we have gone through even a week, say we've got, a, we've got the flu, we've been given a, a, one, one dose a week or two weeks on antis, if we have damaged our gut by taking antis, either for a couple of weeks or seven months, how do we go about healing the gut? Talk me through what do I need to do to get back to full strength again and or what are the things that I need to think about in order to keep my gut strong so I don't have the necessity to go and see a doctor and be prescribed antis? So antibiotics can be essential for some reasons. Having the flu probably is not one of them. But if you have to take antibiotics, I would also take probiotics at the same time, just at separate times of the day. And that's even though the antibiotics are killing your bacteria, the probiotics have been shown to be able to lessen that. So you take that during the course of antibiotics and then continue afterwards. But also your uh, fermented foods like your sauerkraut and your kombucha, kefir, will all provide uh, beneficial bacteria so you don't get depleted as much and then start the healing process afterwards. So if people do that, they can often prevent problems from happening. And we've spoken about bone broth before. Bone broth is really healing for that gut mucosa. So you want to help reduce that inflammation in the gut mucosa. And if people are still experiencing problems like your friend, they may want to do more testing to find out exactly what their problem is. They may have picked up an overgrowth of candida or other pathogens or even something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So the first step is, yeah, taking the probiotics, healing the gut, 
But if, if that doesn't work, you've got to start doing these more specific tests to find out why. So just walk me through this, Smithy, quickly. I, um, I've actually just come off uh, 10 days on antibiotics because I, I scratched my leg at work and it got, it got in fairly badly infected. Now, I've been off it for about three days. I was drinking kombucha once a day while I was on it. Am I still in trouble or have I sort of saved myself a bit from doing that? Or, and, and do I need to do extra now to make up? Uh, for you, Robbo, especially because of the Crohn's, you probably want to do extra. Mm. I would be taking like probiotic supplements and keeping up with the, uh, a variety of different uh, fermented foods because there's different strains in different ones and there's different qualities of different products as well. Mm. So something like a, a soil-based probiotic would be a good one to take as well as yep. keeping up the kombucha. Okay. So what we're saying is that it's if you are on antis, then get into your fermented foods, your bone broth, make sure it's grass-fed, grass-finished, pasture-raised, kefir kombuchas, uh, Robbo's a big fan of turmeric. That would be the sort of stuff you would do. And then what you're also saying that any, we should be doing it anyway, shouldn't we, to build up our resilience in our gut and our gut flora fauna. <laughs> that's kind of where we're going with this, isn't it? Because it's, it, it's, it seems to me that that's the recipe that you're outlining and then the other part of it is that you need to have a variety of these things only because there are different bacteria and different pro or prebiotics feed different bacteria. Is that right? That's right. So you're different... Uh, prebiotic foods are a lot of your vegetables, but also some of your your fibers, your psyllium, uh, flaxseed meal, things like that can be prebiotics. Your co- even cold rice, cold potato is a prebiotic food that can actually feed the beneficial bacteria. Is that right? Nice. Is that right? So I've got some leftover boiled potatoes, coincidentally from this conversation, in the fridge. So you're telling me if I go and eat that now, I'm actually doing my gut some good. Is that right? Absolutely. So if you if you heat those potatoes up, they lose their resistant starch. But if you have them cold like a cold potato salad, mm. they're rich in resistant starch, which doesn't get broken down in the small intestine and will feed the bacteria in the large intestine. Okay. Wow. Yeah, mate, I'm, I'm thinking you need – you need fermented foods, you need some cold potato. I'd be going kombucha, kefir, turmeric, bone broth because based on the smells that come out of this studio in the morning, you are a methane factory. I mean, I've, I, we, we had a dog come in, it left the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used, to have, we used to have plants in here, palm trees. They wilted and died based on what comes out. You are not out of the woods, my friend. I've got to tell you, there is something not right about your gut. Yeah, well, I, I tell you what, I love talking to you, Smitty, because every time I come away, I come away with something new and it always works. So um, you've got me on to bone broth and I've been on that ever since and I would never go off it again. So um, I'm, I'm thinking cold potato might be the next thing on the Robbo's hit list. Cold potato and keep up the kombucha. Can we just run this? We've talked about a number of things that Robbo's putting into his arsenal. Now, take the Crohn's out of it, but a, a person who – is either going through antibiotics, recovering, or wants to be healthy. The question I've got is, how much do I need? Tell me a normal week's, like outline a normal week for me. How many bone broths would I need to have, like a cup of bone broth? Uh, How much kefir or kombucha would I need to have? Uh, How often would I eat fermented foods? So if I'm looking to get my gut healthy and or maintain my gut, 
I'd be curious to know in a given week, how would you prescribe to take these foods so that I'm getting the variety of them and I'm getting enough of it without overdoing it? So if someone's already healthy and they just want to optimize their health for, you know, prevent winter colds and things like that, doing three to four serves of fermented vegetables or, you know, half a cup of kombucha a day, as far as bone broth goes, either two or three serves a week or even having uh, collagen powder, like just that's the lazy way of doing it, which I often do, is just get some collagen powder and have a serve of that each day. Collagen powder you can buy. In fact, Robbo, we had on the show uh, the boys from Nature's Force and they had a protein collagen powder that we were trying. So that would have been a good option to get a bit of protein and collagen in your smoothie in the morning, eh? Mm. Collagen's got the same healing effects as as bone broth. Now, while we're on bone broth, just run me through this quickly because I, I'm interested to know because, as I said, I've become a bit of a fan of the old bone broth. I drink it straight for lunch usually about what you're saying, about three or four times a week, but I also throw it into, you know, if I'm making the kids a bolognese, I'll put a cup of bone broth in their bolognese or something like that. Am I, am I diluting it? You know, am I diluting its benefit by doing that? Should I be getting them to drink it straight or am I, is it not doing any damage to, to the good stuff in there? No, it's not doing any damage. So you can, that's a good way of getting into the kids is using it in cooking. Mm. So bone broth's got, uh, besides the healing properties, it's got different amino acids that you won't find in your sort of amino, uh, like glycine, proline, serine. They're not very high in your normal meats. So getting the organ meats or bone broth is a good way to balance out those mm. amino acids. i tell you the other one, good one, Gaz, that I've started slipping in their meals is a few anchovies in stuff like bolognese's and stews and all that sort of stuff. Get the fish oils into them. <laughs> I thought you were going to try and get Smithy to sign off on your Tim Tam dipping into your bone broth in the studio here. I walk in, he's got the hot bone broth, he's tipping in his, his Tim Tam Smithy. He's going, mate, Smithy said it's fine. I'm bone brothing, buddy. Back off, mate. Back off. I'm bone brothing. It's all about balance. I think that's one thing that would never mix with Tim Tams. I've got to be honest. I was going to say, I don't know about the anchovies and the bolognese. You're not sure? Yeah. I'm not sure how that would taste. You don't really taste it. It's funny because it sort of dissolves into the bolognese, so you don't really taste it. Well, you might answer this. I mean, surely they're just giving them some of the good fish oils that come from anchovy, right? Yeah, they would be, yeah. If it's if it's cooked and eaten that day, I'm not sure. Like fish oils can oxidize, so you wouldn't want to be serving it to them for a couple of days. No, I always serve it up fresh. I yeah. chop up liver and put it through our bone broth. I, I do. Mean, our, um, Your bolognese. bolognese. Yeah, right. Liver is a great way of putting it through, and you don't taste it either. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, that's what that's what's happening next time they get bolognese. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, the other thing you could think about, Robbo, is something that I do is I keep the organs when we knock. A lamb or a or a steer, mm. and I then put the organs in the bone broth. So okay. yeah, right. when you've got the knuckles and the big pieces with the collagen and um, gelatin stuff coming out of the bones, I just mm. put in like a quarter of a heart or a half a liver mm. uh, for twenty four hours, thirty six hours, mm. and um, I find it's, I don't find it tastes any different to normal bone broth. But I, I'd be getting the goodness out of the organs if I do that for a day and a half, wouldn't I, Smithy? Yeah, you would. That would be another way of doing it. Yeah, there you go. See, tick, tick. We're just on this. I'll tell you oh, what. Oh, <laughs> all over it. All over it. 
Smithy, this has been great. There is loads of goodness here in these uh, these pearls of wisdom, bits of gold you're dropping. Mm. Mate, thanks for your time. Good to catch up with you. Glad things are going good over in Vancouver Island. How's the weather over there? Uh, it's beautiful and sunny today. Yeah, long days, sunny days. It's all good. Bit of a cold snap going through uh, the east coast of Ooh, Australia right now. So uh, I think I'd, I'd rather be over there in uh, Vancouver Island, mate. Absolutely. And think about those maple syrup pancakes too. Oh. <laughs> Bit of bone broth afterwards, that'd make up for it, wouldn't it? Everything in moderation. That's right, exactly. So, Smithy, we'll keep in touch. Now that you are a regular on the show with our brand new segment, we're going to be annoying you on a regular basis, mate. <laughs> you might have wanted us to All pay right, him, though. Watch time. out. Thanks, Smithy. Okay, guys. See ya. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I wish I knew how to quit you. The Mojo Radio Show. Oh, he's, he, he's good. He's gold. He is gold, isn't he? He's maple gold. <laughs> now, I am going to take us out today with a story. So okay. settle in, kids. Hang on, let me get the bedtime music out. There you go. Two things, and I will do a proper book review on this, but I just read a massive, it's basically a doorstop, this one, called Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. <laughs> I, I've worked. I've worked with some Titan tools along through the yes, years. Yes, <laughs> I think we all have, and that's not mentioned any names. And so, in fact, I've still got to work with a couple. Um, but this is a this is a very good book. Tim Ferriss is probably regarded as the greatest podcaster in the world. Uh, big fan of our show. <laughs> yeah, he listens all the time. I mean, it, he's only successful because he copies us. I mean, let's be anyway, honest. Anyway, right? but it's a great book. Ideas. I will do a proper book review on it, but I just wanted to read a story, and this is a lesson of rock stroke getting after it segment, and it's to do with it's a page in the book, page two seventy five, the Tools of Titan. It's about a snow, a world champion snowboarder called Sean White. Do you know Sean White? Yeah, snowboarder. Yeah, and he won the Olympics, and he's won everything. He's just got a, an amazing attitude to life. So, out of the book, here we go. Music was a strange one just because no one else in my family is musically in the slightest. I won a guitar at a snowboard contest and I thought, wow, what if I could just be at a party somewhere and play one song? And one song turned into, okay, now I'm training to be a guitar player. I play lead guitar in a band called Bad Things. It's composed mostly of friends of mine from the neighbourhood I grew up in and some amazingly talented guys I met in LA. We started playing our own songs, we got offered a few gigs and there was one moment where we got invited to do Lollapalooza. And I was like, man, this would be heavy. But then it was for the kids' stage. So I said, you know what? It'd be really punk rock to play the kids' stage. So we just go and play the kids' stage. Because I don't think I should be on the main stage, just because I'm in a group, and of course he's an Olympic snowboarder, doesn't mean that we should be given the big scenario. So we just show up, we do our thing. We had a really great show for the kids, And then the most amazing thing happened. It was like out of a movie. The main act on the Grove stage at Lollapalooza decided they weren't going to play. They put a big sign up saying, our art will not be displayed here. Their fans completely demolished their gear and all this craziness ensued. Ensued. All this craziness ensued. (laughs) They, the organisers, look around like, oh, man, we need a band to play the main stage. And so Sean White goes... We're a band. Literally, <laughs> we're a band. <laughs> I love it. It was like crazy. They said, you, come with us. And I thought, oh, my God, this is our moment. we got to do this. And so we played one of the most incredible sets we've ever played. 
we rose to the occasion. We had this amazing set, and just like anyone who picks up a guitar and dreams of being on that stage, you dream of that moment, you're walking off stage, and everyone was cheering for one more song, one more song, one more song. And the best moment of that was I look at my buddies, they're like, we don't have another song. <laughs> we literally don't have another one. Awesome. And the organiser said, play the first one again. <laughs> I just love that. It That's is just awesome. so I love punk it. rock. Yeah. In have a crack at it, get after it, serendipity will take care of the rest. And if it all goes balls up, then just play the first song again. Go just back do, and it over, do it all over again. Great story. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. Isn't that a great story? So uh, I was chuckling to myself when I read that in my quiet moment. Uh, so what about uh, as a tribute to Sean White? Mm. Uh, why don't we play some bad things to get us out? Let's play some bad things, and you can leave that book on the reception desk on your way out. We're out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time. <laughs>